0: Hey guys, Luke Mahalik here. Welcome to the DFD, or Dairy Farming Discussions podcast. Here, we want to discuss all things dairy farming. This podcast is about getting information out that is going to help your dairy operations succeed. Our goal is to bring you timely information on beneficial topics. We plan to bring in some of the top names from the industry to share on the topics they have studied, and more importantly, are passionate about sharing with you, the listeners. I hope everyone enjoys this week's episode and thanks for listening. Hey guys, Luke Mahalik here. Welcome back to the DFD podcast. Uh, Keith is joining me there. Keith, do you want to say hello?
1: Yeah. Hi, everybody, up there in uh, paradise. It's uh, corn silage season. I know it's a little busy for most of us. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's an exciting time of year.
0: Yeah, we are uh, up here at Fergus Guelph We are seeing uh, lots of fields open, lots of guys getting started, I think, uh, by the end of this week. Uh, there's going to be a lot of fields off for silage. So it's it's right in the heat of it here now. And uh, it's an exciting time of year for dairy farmers and uh, guys making silage out there. So it's it's exciting to see everybody going at it. Um, I know we've talked lots about that, but again, we just want to make sure everyone stays safe. So wishing you guys a safe season out there uh, during the silage time. Yeah, so today we have a great guest, uh, Gerard Kramer. A lot of you may know him. He's, he's a specialist in his field there in hoof health. Uh, To give him a bit of an introduction, I will hand it over to Keith here to uh, give us a little bit of his background. So Keith, you can take it away there.
1: Yeah, I just wanted to thank Dr. Kramer for coming on today. I know he's kind of a local legend here in Ontario, uh, being from kind of the the Southwest and getting both his uh, DVM and his uh, uh, DV Science uh, from the University of Guelph. So I'm really excited about having you on here, Gerard. And uh, maybe if you could just talk a little bit about yourself and maybe some of the things that are going on in uh, Minnesota right now. Um, as it pertains to kind of maybe outside of your expertise with uh, foot health, but maybe just kind of a broad overview of what's going on in the dairy industry.
2: Hey, thanks for the introduction. Yeah. So you said, I don't consider myself a local legend, but (laughs) (laughs) it is, I consider it home even though I've been here for seven years, which is the longest I've had a job actually, (laughs) or continuously (laughs) had a job. Um, But yeah, so outside of like outside of my research stuff, the dairy industry in Minnesota is doing okay. Um, so you guys were mentioning corn salvage season. We pretty much wrapped up corn salvage season. We're a little bit ahead with that aspect. Um, but milk prices have kind of rebounded after the fall in the early spring, but they've kind of rebounded um, with that aspect. And Minnesota was one of the states that had a good risk management strategy. So a lot of producers have taken care of that. So the yep. pain that some U.S. producers felt in the spring isn't quite the same as it was in Minnesota.
1: Yeah, I know. I've kind of noticed that. And it anything that I've listened to, like uh, podcasts and webinars from, you know, things like dairyman and Progressive, they're talking about, you know, the milk prices being down, but it, I think it really depended on, on where you are in the U S like is milk price pretty strong or kind of average in Minnesota right now? It's pretty strong.
2: I'd have to look exactly, but I think it's around the $20 a hundred weight at this stage last I looked. So it's basically what it was before COVID. I know there's some government support in the Corona price part in, in that price, but. It's decent for what it was previously.
1: Well, that's good. So, uh, can you maybe go back and uh, talk to some of the producers here about your education and where you're from? I know you used to dairy uh, as well, and you also had a uh, had a uh, practice that's kind of specialized in hoof health. So, maybe if you could talk a little bit about that.
2: Yeah. Um, so, way back in time, my family actually moved to Ontario, Palmerston area. Um, in 88, so that's when we moved from Holland. So, I'm originally Dutch, I still speak a little bit of Dutch. Um, so, a lot of the Dutch listeners will know me a little bit. Um, after that, I completed vet school in 2002, um, then worked in private practice in Heartland, so Listow area, for a year while I tried to run the dairy farm, the home dairy farm. My dad passed away in my final year of vet school, so I became a vet because my dad said, I'm not going to be ready to retire when you're done university, so find something else to do. So I became a vet for that reason. And then I ended up running the dairy farm with my mom and my brother for a couple of years, eventually took over the dairy farm. And during that time, running working as a vet part-time and running a dairy farm was difficult. So I um, decided to do a research project, like a uh, graduate work part-time, kind of as off-farm income, trying to run the dairy farm and do that. And then as I owned the dairy farm, I kind of came to a decision point. It was a 50 cal freestyle dairy and I love cows, I can fix cows, um, I can fix cows feet. But you ask me to fix a tractor or a silo load, or anything mechanical, I, I might as well have no hands. <laughs> so it was really difficult to make that a go. I enjoyed working with the cows. If it was two, 300 cow dairy, I'm of the opinion I probably would still be milking cows, um, but a 50 cow dairy and the debt load that was associated with it. We made a decision as a family or my wife and I made a decision that let's pursue the other interests that I have So I opened up the private practice focusing on foot health in Stratford. We moved to Stratford, kind of centrally located, and did that for a couple years. And then I injured my finger doing something stupid. I had a very good employee, did exactly what I told them to do, except my finger was in the way, (laughs) (laughs) which was my fault. So I injured my finger, had a six-month-off opportunity came up, and we applied. And it was kind of like, well, if I don't take this offer, something I probably regret. And this was pre-Trump, so it was a completely different political environment in the U.S. Um, so we moved here, and I've been here ever since.
1: Oh, that's good. So how do you like the uh, winters in Minnesota? I think they're a little bit different than you're maybe used to in southwestern Ontario.
2: <laughs> so that's actually a funny <laughs> question. It's So I hate winters. I Like right now, when the leaves are changing, I was pointing out, I, I struggle with, um, the change in seasons because I love the cooler, not the warmish temperatures. Um, but winter in Minnesota is actually, I think, nicer than in southwestern Ontario. It's hot, it's cold, but it's sunny, so that really helps. Um, I do a lot of running outside, and actually, I've come to don't mind the season as much because we can dress for it, and we don't have those wet, coldish days that we seem to have in southwestern Ontario with the lake effect.
1: That's perfect. I've heard that a lot from people that live up in kind of the near North Ontario too you know once you get above Georgian Bay a bit then the winters are a lot a lot sunnier that's for sure so anyways let's uh, let's get into the nuts and bolts here. I know you're quite busy we uh, tried to have you on the podcast maybe a little bit earlier in the summer and you were busy doing some um, with your teaching duties with the University of Minnesota so Gerard from your uh, experience in academia and then having your own practice, you know what are the kind of the top five Uh, hot button issues that you see with uh, lameness uh, in the industry?
2: The top issue I see is that people aren't communicating enough. Um, I think if I look at the stakeholders related to lameness, it's obviously the farmer, but the people that support him. So as nutritionists, veterinarians and hoof trimmers, um, I think there's a lack of communication between those three stakeholders. Um, And I think if we both, if all three of those parties would communicate, meet on a regular basis, communicate through WhatsApp or just through text, and present a consistent message to the farm. I think lameness would look a lot different on most dairies. Um, The other big issue that I see is how people use foot baths. So using them um, or expecting them to too much or uh, not frequently enough. So I think that's a big issue if we address that. I think digital dermatitis to me is the easiest to control. So I think addressing that is a big issue and foot baths are key to that. And then probably the last big issue I see is how we deal with chronic cows. Um, I actually believe that most of our lameness problems that we see industry-wide are due to the accumulation of chronic cows um, and not necessarily because we're creating a lot of new lame cows. It's because our chronic cows are accumulating in our system. So I think having a program to truly um, deal with our chronic cows, prevent them um, and detect them early um, would really change how lameness looks in the dairy industry.
0: So Gerard, would you? your initial comment there was uh, you'd like to see more communication. Could you maybe give some examples of where you've seen that working really well and some of the, the ideas that they're implementing. So a farm that is doing a good job of that, what are the steps that they're taking to bring the vet, the nutritionist, the trimmer, the hoof trimmer, everyone together? Like what, what does that look like in a, in a perfect scenario, I guess, or in farms, at least it's working well.
2: So to me in a perfect scenario, it starts with being able to share the records um, very easily and consistently. And that to me means that it's kind of linked, in our scenario, typically through Dairy Comp. So the hoof trimming results either automatically get uploaded to Dairy Comp or um, somebody enters them into Dairy Comp. And then both the vet and the nutritionist have easy access to those records. And I think once we have that, um, then just the communication between the three works really well because everybody can see what's going on in the herd. So we all say if, if trimmers came, for example, on Monday, and the vet checks on Tuesday, the veterinarian can now see, okay, what happened? Um, And you as a nutritionist coming in on Thursday, for example, could also know exactly what happened. So that removes one of the um, barriers. I think the other barrier is just having, or what works well is if the vet and the hoof trimmer and the hoof trimmer and the nutritionist basically have each other's numbers. So if the hoof trimmer sees something on trim day, he feels comfortable texting both the vet and the hoof trimmer and saying, hey. I see this is happening, what's the single type of thing. And it's not it's taking it from a, hey, you should talk to your nutritionist and feed XYZ to saying, Hey, we're seeing this and what can we do together to fix the problem. So that's when I've seen it work where we start instead of saying, Oh, it's a nutritionist, we need to feed more XYZ mineral or change the ration's too hot to saying, okay, I'm seeing more hemorrhages, more ulcers this trim visit. Let's all figure out what's happening and why it's happening. Instead of pointing fingers so it kind of becomes a more collaborative approach and when that I think farms really start to get buy-in because it's consistent message they're not hearing different messages because the farm when we've asked them it gets they get really frustrated with hearing different messages from different stakeholders
1: yeah and I know in the past with uh, some of my uh, clients and farms that I've worked with you know that really helps move the farm forward when you're bringing all the kind of different stakeholders in the from around the farm and different advisors in and and bring them into one meeting, because I think a lot of that stuff does get lost in kind of translation almost. It's like playing a game of telephone when you're a kid, you know, the hoof trimmer might say something to the farmer and the farmer's telling something to the vet or somebody else. And then, you know, you just kind of lose the main message. And I find that, you know, bringing everybody together, you know, not often, you know, maybe two to three to four times a year really kind of helps. So,
2: yeah, I completely agree. And I think it's, even if doing it, like like you said, two to three times a year, when there is a problem, it makes it easier for then somebody to reach out and say, "Hey, I'm seeing this. What's going on?" Right? Because we all have a relationship.
1: That's complete. I completely agree with that too. And I know uh, working with some pretty good producers here, you know, it it really does help. And I know uh, it can be kind of a daunting task uh, sometimes with some new newer folks in the industry. But uh, you know, getting together, getting the getting talking about it you know there isn't really a issue until you know everybody brings it up and everybody talks about it right so from a advisor standpoint like if I'm walking through herd of cows what are some of the things that you know we can look for to kind of help uh, bridge that gap and then and, and bring some of these uh, maybe some of these issues that we're seeing in the barn like how can we bring that to a farmer or hoof trimmer like what what would the process or what should we be looking for?
2: That's a million dollar question in some ways. <laughs> I think the biggest thing you can probably do is just, I don't want to say harp on it, but bring up cows. Like if you're seeing a herd and there's a change in lameness and you're seeing more lame cows, or you're noticing cows that are lame and you wonder if they've been treated, just asking questions about the history of saying, okay, I saw cow 200 and she seemed to be limping and just getting a sense of when this cow has been treated, if she has been treated. So you just asking questions at like the individual cow level, because I think that gives you a sense of what's happening in the herd which um, I think too many, and my experience is mainly with vets, but a lot of vets just walk by lame cows and don't ask questions. And I think as we, as the advisors, other than the hoof trimmers, because they see the cows, um, the nutritionists and the veterinarians saying, okay, lameness is important to me. So I'm going to ask some questions related to it. So whether it be lame cows or seeing cows with um, distigital dermatitis, when you're walking through the barn, seeing a lot of cows is standing or, just making those observations and making a note of it and mm-hmm. trying to get to that teachable moment aspect of it, right? Because if if we, if somebody doesn't bring it up, the hoof streamer might be bringing it up. And if you as an advisor start bringing it up, now there's two people that are bringing up an issue, for example. So I think that's where it starts, Just making sure we don't walk past um, the lame cows and acknowledging them, saying, hey, I noticed there's more lame cows. Let's
1: figure out what's going on yeah I, I completely agree and I know when uh some people that I, I've learned from in the past who is you know just writing and simply writing down a cow number or texting the producer like I don't I know when I'm walking through I'll pull up the producer's phone number and just put a bunch of numbers in a text and then I'll just hit send and uh so then when I go back and talk to the producer about it I'm like oh i seen these cows up there that you know this one was limping this one looks like a strawberry that you know the body condition score I wasn't necessarily like what's what's the story behind this This girl, and I think as advisors, we're we get hired as a second set of eyes in the barn as well. And I think that, uh, us bringing our expertise and our opinions to the producer, it only helps, you know.
2: Yes, completely agree. And I, if like you just described, if I think if more people would do that, I think everybody would see the value in it. And if we go back to the previous point where if the records are easily available when you text those numbers if he doesn't, if the farm doesn't necessarily know the cow number, he just looked it up saying, Oh, she was trimmed last week. What's what's going on. Or, Oh, she hasn't been trimmed for a month or two months. Right. So that's, it's really informative when we do that. So.
1: Yeah. And, and I guess on that question, like what is the ideal amount of times to trim, like say a normal cow through a year? Like there's a lot of debate about it from our, from, you know, once a year, twice a year, three times a year. Like what, what's the ideal number?
2: <laughs> um, so you're, I'm in academia now, so I'm going to say it depends, but I think there's actually, (laughs) (laughs) there's a reason for that. So I don't know if you, there was a huge Twitter discussion happening this weekend um, about one of this, this question. Um, And I think it's actually very farm specific. Um, What we're noticing, especially here in the U.S., and I would argue the same, because this is a trimmer from Manitoba too. As herds get bigger, sometimes they need less trimming because there's more wear, right? So it's easy for me to say trim every cow twice a year but there's a financial cost associated with that. And there's also a milk production impact on trimming day associated with that. So when I make that recommendation, I wanna make sure that there's a return on investment for um, the farm, right? And on a mattress bedded, or a mattress freestyle barn, sure, twice a year should should happen. And I would argue that needs to be targeted. It shouldn't be just every six months, it should be, um, the trimmers that on a routine basis. And that's the key to me, the trimmer should be on the farm on a routine basis. And the routine meaning probably in Ontario, I was going to farms four to six weeks to tr- get at the chronic cows, right? So the question I would flip around is say, how often should the trimmer be on your farm? And it's probably every four to six weeks. And then we can truly f- really figure out how often every cow should be trimmed. There's some cows that need to be trimmed once a year and there's other cows that probably need to be through the trim chute every f- three months. And I think, um, that's very herd specific. So what's the ideal amount? The ideal amount is what the cow needs and the cow needs are probably minimum once, some herds three, some cows four. But it's to me it needs to be herd dependent. If we have the data, then we can make those decisions and then we can set up systems for the cow within each herd. So that's my depends answer. But I think as herds get bigger, There's trim slots that are available, right? And there's only so many trim slots we can fill and we have to make sure we put the right cow in it and not the wrong cow in it.
1: Yeah, and I'd I'd completely agree with that because I know if you're going into a new barn, you might not want to be very aggressive on trimming like the concrete or the new sand or things like that might take care of a lot of the trimming for you. Um, Just kind of from what I've seen in the past and and I know that it's always a... uh, it's always a chore. A lot of times I know here in Ontario, it's not necessarily a routine visit. It's a, you know, twice a year we're going to go through and trim the whole herd uh, type scenario, which is maybe a little bit different than um, what you might be learning or seeing down in the U S but you know, it's what we have to deal with here. You know, a hoof trimmer can come in and, and do a whole herd in a day here and do some heifers and do some dry cows and things like that. So that's good. Is there, is there an ideal timing to when, uh, animals should be trimmed.
2: I would say yes, and I would kind of want to push back on your point where trimmer comes in every every six months and does the whole herd type thing. So I think yep. that's what we have, but I would push that back and say that's what's best for the cow, right? And I was doing every six week visits in some my smallest herd was every three months um, when I was in Ontario, and um, herd size has gotten bigger since then. So I think for the cow, the best thing would be. Um, A dry-off trim, so that she goes into the dry period and calves with the best set of feet possible. So structure that the best way we can. So whether it be the week before dry-off or in a dry-off pen, whatever works best in the system. And then a trim, if we're going to go on average, let's say twice a year trim, I would argue 80 to 120 days in milk, depending on what works best in the system to make it fit. So that would be the best time per, Time periods because you're making sure they calve with a good set of feet and then you're picking up uh, problems that have happened in the transition period type thing. So that's kind of what we're looking for. Um, realizing that the hoof trimmer is an expensive lame cow detector. So the better job you do finding lame cows, um, the more flexibility we have with the timing of those trims. But I truly believe that If we want to get rid of chronic cows we need to get away from an every six months trimming when the hoof trimmer comes because that's just makes for chronic cows the routine visits is what's going to address lameness the most
1: that's interesting i know when i like well you you've worked in the in the ontario industry too and or how can we help facilitate it so that you know the ideal trimming every you know even two months have somebody come in how like how how is that feasible
2: I would start with okay. What's trim they like when we trim the all herd? Does anybody enjoy that specific day? And I would argue for most people, it's probably not a pleasant day because we're moving cows, we're doing a lot of work. It's a huge disruption, and if we add robotic herds to that, it's a huge disruption to the robot system, too. So I think that's one of the things. And then to facilitate it is probably have to reconsider some of the payment structure to trimmers Um, because it's very advantageous for them to come and do 60, 70 cows in one day, right? And in a system where we're trimming every two months, um, every month, depending on the herd size, there's going to be days when you're going to be doing 50 cows with your interior herd sizes, but most days you're going to be less than that, right? So they either have to be able to do two herds a day or um, get paid a little different, um, so by hourly type things. But I think it starts by asking the questions because I was surprised that's kind of how I structured my practice that there was a significant number of people that were quite willing to um, Buy into the system saying, okay, we're going to come on a more routine basis. We're doing away with chasing 70, 80 cows through the trim chute And wasting the whole not wasting but using the whole day to do stuff. We could come in, in the morning trim the cows we needed to for that specific day. And then the farm would have the rest of the day to do their normal day to day routine. So I think just acknowledging that trim day isn't necessarily a fun day for the cow, for the farm and everybody else. It's like, okay, how can we adjust this? And I think there's huge impact on the cow we can have by fixing that. But it starts with having the conversation. And probably the hardest person to convince would be the hoof trimmer in this scenario because it is more work, <laughs> more setup and everything else. So there has to be some incentive from their aspect too.
1: I guess the last question I would have about, you know, disease prevention, like what are some of the things or what do you see from your end on like a good foot bath protocol. I know this is probably a whole another podcast. We could talk about that, but like from the, from a helicopter view of what, what you see out there, what would be the best, the best uh, foot bath protocol?
2: So the best foot bath protocol, um, you're right. It would be a whole podcast, but it's actually pretty straightforward in my mind. It's a foot. It starts with the right foot bath. Uh, You can tell me what you put in the foot bath. And I actually had a question yesterday about that. And the first question I always have is, how big is the foot bath? And I want a foot bath that's at least 10 feet or just under three meters. So 10 to 12 feet. So three meters long. So we get two steps through the foot bath. Um, the typical six foot foot bath, hopefully, we're not seeing as many of those anymore. But they only get th- basically three out of the four feet. And with a longer foot bath, we guarantee that at least every cow gets two dunks through it which when you think about it is only like another second or two of contact time, but it seems to be that's all that's really necessarily to really improve um, how foot baths work. So the efficacy of the foot bath. So it starts with having the right foot bath. So it's make it three to four meters long. Um, we can go a little narrow to keep the volume down and the cost down. And then it to me, it becomes down to frequency. So how often do we use it? And to me, a foot bath, Product, a good foot bath program is like a dial. So if you think you have too much digital dermatitis, just turn the dial, foot bath more frequently. Um, and that's so some farms that's three days a week, some farms that's seven days a week. And then the last thing to consider is product. And then um, I'm a fan of using either formalin or copper sulfate. They both have um, risk associated. One of them is human health risk, which I think we can manage, and the other one is environmental aspect risk. Um, which we can also manage with use of acid. So, but the key point to me is have the right foot bath design and then use it as a dial. So have data that can feed into saying, okay, I have, let's say one case a month and I'm happy with that. Then we can start switching out days. But if you're having five cases a month and like it's the hassle and there's too many lame cows, turn that dial up. So treat the cows that have it, but then the footpath kind of keeps it in check. So we need to have a good bath program to keep it in check. And that's, the footpath is just a dial. So if you have too much, most farms have to bath more frequently because it's, using the footpath is the easiest thing to adjust because we can't necessarily adjust the hygiene on most farms um, in the current situation.
0: We are going to talk a little bit in the question period, a little bit more about some of the myths around, strat- uh, myths around hoof health. But could we talk about some of the nutritional strategies that could be used uh, that we actually know will have a positive effect.
2: Yep. So if we're talking to straight nutritional strategies, so the top thing that people bring up is of course, um, feeding the right amount of minerals and things like copper, zinc and biotin. Um, those are, there's enough data I, th- I would argue in for all those products, um, to say that there's something there, there's an effect there and we can get benefits to hoof health by feeding those products. Um, two caveats to that statement. Um, One is we need to feed them for a long time. So if you take biotin for example, the data would suggest that to see an effect from feeding biotin, we need to feed it for six months. So that means we need to feed it to um, late pregnant heifers and in a close-up period. Because if we're not feeding it then, you're starting your clock a day at days in milk zero and then lameness risk typically happens early lactation. So if we don't have the Groceries, so the biotin, the copper, and the zinc on board. Right at day zero, um, we're losing some of the bang for our buck. So we need to feed it in the dry period, late gestation, but also during the transition period. So that's one key with feeding it, feeding those type of things. And then there's a whole range of products. Um, I always push back and say, okay, what's the data behind the products? So there's some products that have a lot of data. Some other products don't have as much data, um, but I think that's probably the biggest, the top of the line thing that people think about. And then there's a whole range of nutrition associated factors. So making sure just fresh feed available, all those things. But if we're talking specific nutritional interventions, the top ones would be feeding um, some of the trace minerals. The other caveat to that scenario is to me, they're like... um, the frosting on the cake, even though I don't like frosting myself, um, but they're they're not going to cover up a huge problem. They're going to help. So if you're doing everything you can with lameness and it's relatively under control, but you're struggling to get over the hump, um, product like that can help. But if you are um, having a lot of digital dermatitis, for example, and you um, feed just say we're going to feed some more zinc and copper to increase skin integrity, integrity Um, it's not going to solve all the problems. They're going to contribute. So we need to have everything else in line, I think, to see the huge benefit from them.
1: So um, we like to talk about prevention versus reaction. So what are some of the things that we can do to prevent, you know, I know you talked about uh, mineral nutrition and things like that to prevent some of the foot issues, but what are some other things that we can do around the farm uh, to prevent uh, or to kind of maximize hoof health?
2: I would argue the biggest, so if we, we already talked about foot baths. So that's one of the things we can do prevention, um, hoof trimming is another key one, especially in in herds that have a lot of growth. So for example, especially mattress herds, I think hoof trimming is a key preventative measure. Um, so that's another key one or appropriate hoof trimming. And then probably other biggest thing that I uh, look at for, um, Preventative measures would be, what are we doing to reduce standing time? So most of the ulcers, white line lesions are caused due to um, cows standing too much, especially during the transition period. So what are we doing to manage standing time? How much time in the holding area? How much time away from the pen and doing things to um, make sure that's not an issue. So, So, Most herds, if we can get less than four hours time away from pen, we can get to around that 12 hours worth of lying time considering all the other things that are happening to the cow. Um, so that's probably the biggest thing that I look at when I'm trying to solve problems and trying to prevent things is, okay, what are we doing? Can we get these cows to lay down and can we get them to transition period without any issues? So lameness in my mind is a transition disease. So anything you do to prevent things like ketosis, DAs, um, are going to pay off a benefit to with lameness.
0: The one question I had, I actually, I think I heard you speak a few years ago and maybe touched on this a little bit, but in your mind, what makes a successful hoof trim? If, if that could be asked as a question. So for example, you have the trimmer come out for a day. How do you know that that day was a success and not just blowing through, like we've talked about, not just blowing through as many animals as you can get through in a day, right? So when the trimmer leaves, you've had the cows now, you know, they've had a day to kind of adjust again after, after the trimmer has gone how do we evaluate whether that was a success or not uh, on the farm? If if that helps clarify a bit more.
2: Yeah, no, that's, I think that's a great question. So, and I'll expand on that a little bit. So there's two aspects to me through the trim, right? So there's the actual physical act of removing the horn from the cow's foot. Um, and that's easy to judge, right? So a good day in that aspect is that there's no more lame cows after trimming than there were before trimming, right? To me, the cow's the ultimate judge. So, we can talk to her blue in the face. And I tried to do that yesterday with somebody about which trim technique is the best, but the ultimate proof is I want to be able to trim a cow's foot in a manner that when she leaves the chute, she's walking better and she's not going to go lame the next day or next week because she's been over trimmed. So that's the ultimate judge, I think for a good trim day. The other point I would argue, um, related to your question you brought up, what makes it, how can we judge it's a good trim day is did our milk on trim day stay the same as the day before and the day after? Right? Because there's I have data to suggest that cows lose about a kilogram or more of milk um, on trim day for a couple of days after trim day because they've been disrupted from their routine. Right. And that's yeah. as herds get bigger, that's those kilograms start to add up. Right. So if we can make the experience for the cow that she's in and out of that trim process and with minimal disruption to her day, she's going to return your favor to you by continuing to produce the same amount of milk she was producing the day before. If we make that a longer process, she's losing milk, guaranteed. So I think the two judges would be, do I have the same number of lame cows a day before or after, and I, ideally of less um, after trimming, and is my milk production the same? Is my feed intake, rumination, whatever monitor you want to put on it, are those numbers relatively the same
0: after trim day, okay. And so, maybe not to push back on that, but how often do we realistically see that where we don't see any loss in milk or disruption, uh, kind of in that after a day of trimming? I mean, I, I love the idea of seeing that, but I don't think I've ever seen that practically.
2: <laughs> so you probably well, so you can make that happen, and there's two there's two ways to make that happen. Um, so if we think about the every six months trimming, right? Typically what we do is we pull into the pen or we pull up to a pen. We bring a pen of cows into the holding area. If I'm making some assumptions about a dairy, but let's say we put them in the holding area, we run them through the trim chute, right? How long does it take to trim that day? Right? So that's where I would push back and say, this is a benefit of going to more frequent trimming, more frequent trim visits and we decrease the impact on the cow, right? So instead of putting 30, 40 cows in that holding area to push through the trim chute in a morning session before we break for lunch or whatever, now we're putting smaller groups of 10, right? So those cows, instead of spending two, three hours away from their pen, now they're spending an hour. Right. So I think that's how we accomplish those type of scenarios. It's even smaller group sizes. The scenario where I've seen it the work, the work the best is when the farm is a trim chute, right? And I would argue every, f- to have a license part of CQM, you should have a trim shoot. I know I don't have the power, but that would be my <laughs> ideal wish. Um, and then it becomes much easier to make that thing accomplished. So I'm saying like, I know I'm pushing the boundaries of what's possible. I want people to be aware there's a significant yeah. cost, not a There's a cost associated with putting calcium trim shoot. And we need to, there's also a benefit associated with it. And we need to weigh those benefits.
1: No. And I really like your comment about having the hoof trim shoot on farm. I know like. You're the expert on it. Like, and we've, and I've heard you talk numerous times about how the foot physiologically, the form starts to change once that cow starts to go lame. So, I mean, the quicker that we can get uh, up on this, I think having the, we're going to do better by the cow and we're also going to do better by the farm because it's going to cost less if you're doing less, you know if the farmer has got to put a, or if the, sorry, the hoof trimmer has got to put a block on or got to do a wrap or do things like that, you know, there's a cost associated with that as well. And if they're doing these preventative things, I think it's, it's good for the farmer and it's good for the cow.
0: Yep. I think, I think I heard you use the analogy once Gerard. I'm pretty sure it was you, but that trimming hooves should be like the same way we clip our nails.
2: I would, I use that in a, like I use clipping the nails. It's like, we shouldn't, I use it in a scenario when we overclip our nails and it's very sensitive and painful. Um, but yeah, it's, I can see how that analogy works. And might not have been, I, don't, I, don't, I haven't pushed it further than just saying if we don't want to trim them too short, but I yeah. could see how frequently we trim our nails and
0: it's not a stressful process to us. So it shouldn't be a stressful process to the gap. Right, yeah, I, I think that was, wherever I heard, I think that was the context was that we don't, it doesn't hurt when we trim our nails, right? So why, why do we have to make it do that uh, when we're trimming hooves as well, right? Exactly. So- yeah. And we've right.
2: like, I have some data where we've looked at just running cows through the trim shoot and the stress response happens because they're away. Like the process, it doesn't happen because of the trimming. It's the process okay, gotcha, that creates gotcha. the stress re- yeah. stress response. And then the That's other it.
0: question you, you guys both were mentioning, and I, I don't disagree with the idea of having trim shoots uh, on farm. Um, what do we do about the situation when you get onto a farm and think, the first thing you think is, wow, there's a lot of lame cows here. And then you find out that they're never getting a trimmer in and they're doing it all themselves in the chute. How do we handle that situation? <laughs> yes.
2: So it's cause you're right. Having a trim chute on the farm doesn't mean um, that we have less lame cows. It needs, it needs to be used. Right. So <laughs> how do you handle that situation? That's where I think the team approach comes in. Right. So then there's no trimmer on the farm, So then it's you and the veterinarian. right? Um, and that's, if there's a trim chute on the farm, I would argue then the veterinarian has no excuse not to treat lame cows, right? Does this trim shoot on farm? I know not all trim chutes are created equal, yeah. but it's better than a rope and a beam. That's so I think that's where the team approach comes in and saying, hey, we have this chute, why is it not happening? Yes, maybe I'm willing to pay for those type of things. But with the standards that exist in the industry, I think that's where taking a team approach and saying, okay, at this rate, you're not gonna your lameness levels are gonna be too high for CQM or pro action. So let's how do we address this? You have the trim chute, how do we need to make this happen? Maybe it's we need more training for the person, or we need to make it easier to get the cow in the trim chute. Those type of things, right? But it's just take it a team approach and okay, we have the materials, why is it not happening?
0: yeah and it's it's a very delicate situation so i wasn't meaning to put anybody on the spot i understand that and it's it can be very difficult at times but no it 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 does happen right and so uh i i would love to see shoots on every farm but at the same time yeah we want to make sure that whoever's using them is is well trained and and not actually making the situation worse right so exactly yeah for sure
1: i had uh i had one more thing i want to touch on here dry before we get into maybe some of the questions um but we're coming off one of the hottest summers that we've had in a long time. And what are some of the things, what are some of the lingering effects of heat stress that we're going to see this fall?
2: So you're entering what we, what we trimmers like to call block season. You're probably already in block season. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So, and that's, it's basically the heat stress, right? So it's predictable. It's going to happen. um, Well, it's predictable because I think we're missing some of the key aspects of it, but what things you can do. So anything. So to me, the reason it happens is twofold. Um, What we're learning about lameness is there's a whole chronic component to it. So these cows that have a history of lameness in the past now are probably going to stand a little bit more because of the heat stress, right? So heat stress, typically cows respond by standing more and that just puts more pressure on the corium. And we typically end up with sole ulcers would be the top lesion we see with those. So Preventing chronic cows is one aspect of it. Preventing standing time is a second aspect of um, preventing problems in block season. Um, So that is a key thing. So anything you can do to cool cows, I would argue starting probably pre-fresh through the transition period and then just keeping them cool, keeping them comfortable the best we can, getting them to lay down and prevent those long standing bouts. Um, and that's because that's what's causing the heat stress. There's probably an inflammatory component to it um, that we don't quite understand yet because standing time alone prob well, I'm pretty confident that standing time alone doesn't result in soul ulcers. There needs to be another inflammatory component to it. Um, so that systemic inflammation due to heat stress is probably another component to it that causes it. So anything you can do to cool your cows is going to be beneficial. So fans, soakers, all those type of things, holding times or holding pen, making sure we don't turn it into a barbecue. Those type of things and running your fans longer than you feel you're hot because cows' thermoneutral zone is a lot lower than ours. So it probably means you have to run your fans throughout the night when it's already cooler to cool to bring their core body temperature down, so they're not still hot in the morning when it gets hot again.
1: Yeah, and I think uh, I think we're gonna have a busy block season this year. Just kind of seeing what was the weather was like in July and August here not so much August, but mostly July here in Ontario. So Gerard, is there anything else that you maybe wanted to talk about um, before we get into some of these questions?
2: No, I think, I guess we didn't really. So the other, we talked a little bit, like I've mentioned the chronic cow thing and uh, we had a bit of a discussion about this, getting away from the six month interval. Um, and especially during block season, I think to kind of expand on the chronic cow thing, what I would love to see for the chronic cows is that they're on a routine trimming program. And that basically means if a cow any cow with a history of lameness gets trimmed as a preventative measure every three months just to prevent her showing up in block season and becoming lame, right? So we already know she's at risk for getting lameness because she had that history. And I think we can use, do her a lot of good and manage her um, pain and welfare by trimming her more repeatedly. And I think that's probably one of the missing components in most of our trimming programs, I would argue worldwide, not just because we're trimming six months, every six months in Ontario, but it's everywhere.
1: I know I get a little bit uh get I guess the blinders on I guess because we you know every day we see Ontario but is this like a is that more common worldwide to do a big trim like that or do you see a trend towards more kind of interval trending or interval uh trimming
2: um I'd love to say there's a trend it's still very common to do every six months so it's it's much easier um even like outside of Ontario as, as driving distances get bigger it's like in Alberta, for example, or Manitoba, it's really hard to make that happen. But I think as herds get bigger, it becomes much easier, right? And that's where we have to say, okay, what's the cut point? Um, what can we do to make it happen? But definitely in the U.S. with a larger herd, it's way more common to do the intervals, or the shorter intervals. So there's some herds that were there every week or every two weeks, every three weeks. But like I was saying, I was trimming in two, 300 cow herds and even a 50 cow herd uh, my interval typically was three to six weeks, depending on herd size. And then for my 50 cow herd, it was maybe every three months. So I think it's feasible. Um, but And it's a trend I'd love to see more of, but worldwide, it's still, I think the majority of cows are still on there every six months where we come in and do a whole herd. Just herds here in the US where the trimmer comes in and does a thousand cow herds in a couple of days. And I just shake my head and I ask myself why, but it's still happening.
1: Yeah, I'd uh, have to agree with that as well. Just kind of from what we see here, but uh, you know what we see in Ontario maybe isn't what's happening in Minnesota or California or even uh, other other territories and or other provinces in Canada as well too. So
2: it goes back to that question where you asked me like, how often should we cow be trimmed? I think we need to get away from like saying, okay, this is the protocol for everybody. It's it's got to be heard specific, right? And then say, okay, yeah. what works for this dairy? What can we make work in the system? How can we do the cows in this system the best? Like, how can we serve them the best? And then I think we start
0: making progress.
1: Luke, it's our favorite part, the questions. Do you want to start off?
0: Sure. Well, yeah, so we had some questions come in, and and I also had written down some questions that I had from uh, farmers that I deal with. Uh, so um, do you want to start maybe, Keith, with some of the questions that we had come in, and then I can go on and some of the questions I had from just farms I deal with?
1: Uh, yep. Yeah. Is there a nutritional link to ulcers, I guess, is one of the ones that I had come in? Is that a myth or is that, uh, is that real? <laughs> I would argue it's a myth.
2: So I, if you've heard me speak, I always downplay the link between nutrition and lameness. Um, I'm actually working right now on a model to induce soul ulcers in cows, and I'm not manipulating nutrition one bit. Um, so I, I think it's a myth. Um, there is an inflammatory component to it. Um, but if that's ruminal acidosis, we've, there's enough data to support that there's a link. There's more data to support a link between a transition period and link and ulcers than there is between, um, feeding too much, uh, starch or creating rumen acidosis and that resulting in ulcers. Am I going to have to change my tune? Maybe. But at this point, I think the data would suggest that it's more likely something that's happening in a transition period than we're feeding them too much grain or just not enough fiber type approach.
1: So do you think that's just like from a body weight loss or a mineral nutrition or deficient deficiency or
2: it's so boiled to me, it boils down to inflammation. So the body condition loss, there's something there. It's not as big as we originally thought, um, but there's some inflammatory process that's happening. And because it's transitioned, it's like it's inflammation everywhere. Um, and then, probably the combination of an inflammatory event, plus an extended standing time event. And it seems relatively easy in commercial herds to create soul ulcers. Um, I've restricted lying time. Um, so basically mid-cows stand up for 18 hours for two or three days straight and put a block on them to make them put all the pressure on their feet. And I can't give them a soul ulcer. Um, So there's (laughs) another component to it. The cows look horrible. They walk really lame. They want to lay down. Um, After the second day, I ethically couldn't make it to it for a third day because it was just like the cows looked horrible. Their skin, like, you know, the hair coat changes and they've kind of dull. Those are cows that aren't laying down enough. But there's more to it than just the standing time. So that's where there's a hesitation in my voice saying there's something inflammatory likely happening. So I'm working on the next iteration. But that still doesn't necessarily involve um, uh, change in nutrition per se. The th- one of the theories is that it's a change in glucose availability at the level of the foot, right? So it's just, there's a huge draw. And so the immune system would be one of them that's drawing all the glucose away. So there's not enough glucose at the level of the corium to grow horn, plus the standing time. And that might re- result in ulcer. So that's the avenue we're heading down to, but stay tuned for that. But to get back to your question, I would argue there's, there's not as much there as we historically have thought there to be. Uh,
1: the next question is, uh, when should a heifer get her first pedicure? <laughs> so
2: like we talked about, <laughs> this is like a theme of the podcast, right? Um, yeah. It's gonna be herd specific, right? So if I'm yeah. a heifer and I'm from a pack barn and I'm going to a sand bed or freestyle barn, I probably want to trim her before because she's gonna have longer feet and I don't want her to wear off all her heels when she enters the sandbar. Um, but if I'm a heifer and I'm raised um, on a sandbedded bedded uh, facility as a heifer, and then I'm going into the sand bedded facility as a, uh, as a cow, and I look at the records and I have no lameness whatsoever in first lactation, then I have to ask myself a serious question, even though I make my money trimming feet, our, that animal need to be trimmed because I don't have any lameness in first lactation. So, what benefit is the farm getting by running her through the trim chute? Realizing there's some milk loss and everything else associated with it. Right. So it's it depends. Um, the safe answer is six to eight weeks before calving for all heifers. So we catch all the cows that have problems and we treat those. But we have to realize there's not all that much good evidence to support all those recommendations. So that's where I think it becomes herd specific and using the records from the herd to say, okay, do we have a lot of lameness in first lactation? And is there other ways we can catch those cows and how much can we prevent? And what do the feet look like? And if there are skis going in, then yes, I want to do something, but if they look good and they're not lame, and we don't see a lot of lameness in first lactation, I'm on the fence. Which yeah. if you would ask me when I was in Ontario, I probably would have said, "No, we got to trim them all, right?" So oh. I think <laughs> as the herds get bigger, these things change, and we have to adjust.
1: Well, I think the more we learn and the more we see, too, we get a uh, we get a better uh, better idea of what you know each herd should do specifically. I'm just I know we're trying to talk in general generality here, but we're trying to you know. Pander to somebody that's you know a 30 cow tie stall and a thousand cow freestyle right so we're just yes it, it's uh we need our kind of our best answer not the not the correct answer sometimes so. <laughs> there you go every heifer should be tripped before yeah. calving how's that <laughs> uh and then the last question that i had on my end uh what's the deal with acidified copper sulfate because i know um there's been a lot of uh, there's been a lot of talk about it, and uh, I'm just kind of wondering. It's not my area of expertise by any ways, any means, but I know it is yours. So I was kind of wondering what's what's the deal with it?
2: Okay, how much chemistry do you want to know? or <laughs> want to get into. So the uh, we, Yep. It's <laughs> good. Okay, we can I'll, to summarize basically what the point of um, using an acid with copper sulfate, so it could be acidified, um, acidified copper sulfate, which is probably an expensive way to do it. But what we're trying to do is just decrease the pH so more copper gets in solution. So just using straight copper sulfate and water, you get a pH of about 5.5 and about half of the copper is in solution. When you bring that pH down at least one log scale, so 4.5 or even lower, all of the copper gets in solution. So when you add an acid to the copper sulfate, you can basically half your dose. So for aiming for five percent copper in a normal foot bath, if I add an acid and bring our pH down starting at typically a three-ish um, and changing it when it's above four, then I can only then I can drop my copper to two and a half percent. so then I re- reduce the environmental load associated with using copper in the foot bath. So that's kind of the, what's happening with the copper, and there's different assets at different price points that try to get the ph down but there is you have to be careful not get the ph down too low because then we can create more chronic cows
1: so it's not about an actual efficacy of the foot bath it's about the amount of copper that you want to get into solution
2: yeah which okay that's basically what it's trying to do it's the efficacy is probably similar it's just you get to use less copper
1: yeah okay
0: Hey, no, that's good. Um, Yeah, so like I said, a few of these are just questions uh, that I've just kind of come across over the years of just being on farm with different producers. Um, A big one right now, maybe not so much a question, but a scenario just to maybe mention, see what your thoughts would be, is we are seeing a lot of uh, new barns go up around uh, the area and particularly a lot of robot barns going up that might be a little bit more affected. But uh, what are some tips and tricks guys could look at doing uh, to help that transition specifically, probably from going more from like even a tie stall to a new uh, either uh, parlor system or a robot system where they're gonna be in a, a free stall or pack situation.
2: What do they can do for like trimming wise? yeah, so, Let-
0: well trim yeah, sorry, just be more specific, I guess, yeah, what what can they do to minimize the um, the stress there because they're gonna be on fresh concrete, things like that. So more so, I guess maybe not even a new barn, but just when they get onto fresh, Uh, concrete. What are some, are there some tricks and things guys could be doing to kind of minimize the stress of that?
2: The earlier you pour your floors before the cows go on it, the less of an issue, the actual fresh concrete and the burning that we typically think is associated with it. But I actually think the bigger issue with fresh concrete or new concrete is um, the aggressiveness of the floor and the finish on the floor. And that's probably the major issue. And I would argue the chemical reaction with the skin and the pH it's probably less of an issue. It's more the actual abrasiveness of the floor. So anything you can do um, to make sure your floor is grooved properly and not abrasive provides just the right amount of traction. So to me, that's having um, a groove that's wide enough that it actually stops the foot. So I prefer three quarter inch grooves as opposed to one half or half inch grooves um, that are typically out there. But that's, I think it's the abrasiveness of the floor. So anything, so broom finish, gets tricky Um, so I prefer a relatively smooth floor and then we cut into the floor after because we can control the aggressiveness of the floor better as opposed to doing a wet concrete but if your floor is already poured and it's abrasive start skid steer buckered cinder blocks get that get those rough edges off because you're going to pay for it with thin soles and the cow's hurt especially if they're coming from a stall scenario where we have a lot of wall and not a lot of soul but wear that wall off in about half a day.
0: And then we're dealing with thin soles real fast. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's just an issue that we have. And I I know there's probably not a uh, surefire answer. I just wondered if you'd seen some stuff and and that's good advice. I I appreciate that. Um, another issue uh, we run into or I've run into a few times is, uh, farmers talking about, um, They're spraying the back of hooves uh, in parlors, I guess, in in some situations that happens in the robot as well, Uh, but they don't seem to think they need to foot bath then. And I I didn't know if you want to talk on that a little bit as well, that they think that's good enough. And uh, I mean, without getting in there with a flashlight, maybe and looking at the back of the hooves to see if there is any uh, digital dermatitis or any issues in there. um, Is there an advantage or not to foot bathing if they don't think there's a problem? If they (laughs) seem to be cleaning the hooves?
2: So I think there, so there's probably a benefit to cleaning the feet. Is it going to be enough? I think that's where having the data to support that up, right? So to me, there's herds that we deal with that have less than 1% digital dermatitis over the year, and it all depends on your goal, right? So to me, digital dermatitis should be the easiest controlled disease, so we need to have less amount of it. So I would argue in most footpaths or robot scenarios, we probably still need to bath because you're missing even with the spraying, you're missing kind of the inner space and you're missing the odd one you're going to get in the front feet. Um, but so does it help? Yeah. Cleaning the feet is going to help, but you're still not cleaning all the spots. So someone heard that I remember when I was working with them, we started to see more digital dermatitis in the front of the foot instead of the back of the foot. Cause yeah. we're cleaning the back with a spray and not necessarily the front. Yeah. So it's, I don't think it's the be all and end all to it. So I think it's there needs to be a footpath. And I think getting back to your other question, what can farms do is make sure there's a place to treat the lame cow in your robot herd, but also a place to bath your cows. Yeah. That needs to be built into the design.
0: Yeah, no, I, I think that's great. Uh, another question I had um, was, so I, I know we've talked about it a little bit here. So, I mean, maybe we don't need to beat a dead horse, but um, can, can you just give us a little bit more impact uh, importance of keeping records and sharing records um and how that that what impact that actually could have so i I don't know if we talked fully about the impact of that but
2: yeah no i think to me that's key none of the things we talk about so if we want to get to the herd specific programs we need the records to start with and especially now um if a lot of hoof tumors are and i know a lot of hoof tumors in ontario using hoof supervisor and if they're using if the farm's using dairy comp has it on farm so that's a bigger farm, obviously, but if they have one version of dairy comp, there's pretty much a seamless link now between the two programs. So that is going to be key and makes looking at records easy. But even with hoof supervisor, if they smaller tie style scenario, the hoof trimmer can email the records to you, to the veterinarian, right? could be automatically set up trim day, he sends one email to both you and the veterinarian, and now you automatically have the records. It takes a bit more work to look at days and milk trends. But once we have that system set up, we can drive trim programs, right? I can automatically create a trim list then. So for the farm, instead of saying, okay, well, when's the last time we trimmed? It's automatic. I can say, okay, these 30 cows, 40 cows need to be trimmed today. It includes my chronic cows. Um, we can make decisions about the footpath. So I, to me, they're key. I think all the things we talked about without the records, we're driving a car blind and we have to talk in generalities. okay, we're going to trim everybody twice a year, those type of things. But if we have the records, we can make, more informed
0: decisions and truly help both the cow and
2: I'd argue the profitability of the
0: farm. Could you just leave us with, I know we've talked a little bit more on the advisor side of things, but talking more to the farm level, um, could you talk to us, uh, just give us maybe a few rules of thumb and specifically financial rules of thumb uh, that hoof health impacts could have. So positive versus negative. Um, I know that's pretty vague, but is, is there some, Typical rules we could use just to, to have for producers that are listening or if we're going out to farms that we could also uh, to use to kind of use as an indication of if we improve this much, you could see this much financial gain again. So if we just, egg, but.
2: yeah, so there's, if we talk financial or dollars and cents, typically the number gets thrown out for a case of lameness. If we think ulcer versus digital dermatitis, um, so f- numbers that get thrown around is three to $500. That's associated with this it includes milk production loss, yep. um, reproductive loss, um, treatment costs, and all those type of things. But even digital dermatitis, which some people think argue is not a big deal, there's typically about a kilogram of milk across the lactation that's associated with that loss. So if you just want to do the math on that kilogram of milk, yeah, that adds up fast. Yes. So that's I think the impact is probably bigger than you see, and it's hard because they're your lame cows typically are somebody your higher producer in cows, right? So they're still producing good and cows will milk. We've all seen it, cows will milk the skin off their back, the fat off their back to keep milking, right? So they're still like, oh, she's still producing a lot of milk, but the question is really how much more could she be producing if she wasn't, didn't have that digital dermatitis or didn't have that soul? ulcer? Because they'll be good cows. Right. But there's milk loss associated with it. it so- would
1: be the opportunity milk loss. Like what would the opportunity, like what could yes. that cow potentially do if everything was sound?
2: Yes, exactly right, and that's just the kilogram of milk. It's three sixty-five. So times that by your milk price, there's an approximate cost that you can. That is probably a safe bet to use. And we're not going to reduce lameness to zero, but we can reduce it to much lower than the numbers we have
0: right now. Yeah, and I I think often that's the most impactful, right? When we're as as advisors, we can all meet together and kind of have a plan, and we we know the answers, and probably the farmers do realistically as well but until they see a financial impact uh, as a result, oftentimes they're not willing to make too many major changes. So when we can talk about some of these things, a kilo of milk or uh, you know, three to $500 uh, per case, all of a sudden you can put a financial uh, statement to it and, and it starts to add up pretty quick as you mentioned there, right? So uh, hopefully that helps uh, make some of the producers listening a little bit more aware of, of what is happening if we don't address some of these. So I, I appreciate that, that. Those are good numbers to have.
2: With those numbers, like realistically, if you do a partial budget to try and pencil out paying for a shoot, paying for somebody to, to stand there and look for lame cows, a better foot footpath program, trimming more frequently, all those numbers pan out with, right. if you reduce lameness. Right? And that's, that's the bottom line. It's not the investment you're going to make, you're going to see a return. To me, the key is presenting that scenario, but also presenting a key plan forward and how we're going to monitor the outcomes. Right. And that's where the team approach comes in. So to me, it's a combination of having a dollar and cents and having everybody bought into this program and working towards addressing it.
1: Yeah. You can't manage what you don't measure. So exactly. measure, measure, measure.
2: Yeah, yes. Exactly.
0: Um, yeah. On that, I think that was it for the questions. Keith, did you have any final thoughts there?
1: No, I, I was just wondering if uh, Dr. Kramer had any uh Any final thoughts that he'd like to share with us?
2: I guess the one thing we didn't necessarily talk about, we kind of talked around it um, is the other. So we talked about chronic cows and trimming and all that stuff. But I think the biggest, the other big thing we can do is making sure we identify the lame cow early and treat her right away. Right. So lameness, isn't something that goes away on its own. No lame cow really gets better on its own. Um, So we need a system on a farm to identify the cow, treat the cow and treatment should happen as soon as you would treat a cow with a DA type thing, right? So there should be an approach to say, okay, if I have a lame cow today, she's going to get treated within, ideally the same day, but within X number of days. Like we're not going to wait till the hoof trimmer comes. All oh, the hoof trimmers coming in a month, or we'll wait till then. There needs to be a process to address that lame cow because if we address her at that point in time, she's less likely to become the chronic cow and less likely to come back to you during block season type approach so that's the other thing we haven't really discussed Just treating that lane cal, making sure we find her and treat her appropriately
1: it seems like we could have like three to five podcasts out of this one gerard <laughs> <laughs> I've, been encouraged, so much.
2: Yeah. I've been encouraged to start a lameness podcast i just haven't come around <laughs> to it
0: but. there's a lot each of these each of the questions and things we've we've touched on i think there, yeah there's almost an episode on each of those if we really want to dive into them right so appreciate the opportunity to spread the word yeah well we appreciate you coming on we really do and um no that's good i appreciate the opportunity to speak with you all
1: i just like to thank dr kramer as well too it's always great to see uh on people from ontario making kind of a worldwide impact and and spending some of their time to uh kind of help the producers uh where they started so thank you dr kramer
0: you're welcome And, and to touch on that just a funny quick story here uh there's there's no way you would ever remember this but I, I actually the first time I met you was years and years ago I used to deliver uh, feed bags well before I started into nutrition this is probably 15 years ago and uh, we used to come out to your farm there with the current uh, feed company I was working with there doing the bag delivery so that was back really in the <laughs> dairy farm back in Rivett Dale Palmerston area there so, yes yeah. Yeah. That wow. was, that's probably pushing 15 years ago. I would think if that timeline lines up there, but I think that's about right. So
2: yeah, that is about right. That's yeah. that's right when I had the farm there. So yeah. wow. Small world.
0: <laughs> it is. Yeah. It's funny to, I, I saw your name come up a few times and then yeah, you've spoke at some seminars and conferences and uh, it is a small world how that comes fully around there, but yeah, that's that's quite a few years ago, at least for someone as young as I am. But uh, yeah, that was, that was a different world back then, or it feels like a long time ago. But guys, I appreciate both the input today, both the insights you've been giving us, and I'm sure the producers are gonna get a lot out of this. Um, as always, if there's more questions, feel free to reach out to, uh, to one of your nearby reps or dealers, and uh, we can always follow up with some more uh, information on any of these topics. And uh, so with that, Dr. Kramer, we, we really appreciate and value your time today. And thanks for all the insight. And Keith, as always, we appreciate your insight and comments as well. And uh, with that, we thank you guys. Hope you have a great week and uh, and keep up uh, the good luck there with the corn silage. And uh, thanks for your time today. Thanks. Thanks. Hey, guys. Thanks for tuning in this week. We really are trying to keep this podcast product and ad free. However, if you have any questions about what you've been hearing, we strongly recommend reaching out to your nearest SureGain dealership. We have reps across Ontario, Canada, and the USA that would love to come to your farm and offer solutions to those problems that have been keeping you from achieving your goals. Please feel free to share this podcast with anyone that you think might benefit from this information or on your social media platform of choice. I also encourage you to tune into Keith Schweitzer's YouTube channel. We'll be releasing podcast episodes every other Thursday, and Keith will be releasing YouTube videos on the opposite weeks. We appreciate your support and look forward to sharing with you real soon.